If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. British summertime is finally here and we want you to make the most of it by getting to know more of the history you love with a subscription to BBC History magazine. Subscribe this summer and get six issues for just £24.99, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, when you sign up, you will also receive a book of your choice from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917-1921 to by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, or In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Gone with the Wind is one of the most popular novels of all time. Published in 1936, the Civil War era story made its author Margaret Mitchell an instant celebrity and it soon earned her a Pulitzer Prize, not to mention the blockbuster film adaptation of 1940. But in her new book, The Wrath to Come, Professor Sarah Churchwell re-examines Mitchell's book to explore what it can reveal about some of the most controversial elements of American history. From the myth-making that sprung up following the Civil War to the origins of modern debates over racism and the far right in the US. Rachel Dinning spoke to Sarah to find out more. My first question to you is, what prompted you to draw parallels between this fictional book from almost a century ago and modern America? Well, it really all began for me in um, 2017 when the debates over bringing down the Confederate monuments um, in the US really started to escalate. Of course, they've been going on for a while at that point. Anyway, but um, of course, 2017, after Donald Trump took office, was 
the summer of the outburst in um, of the violence in Charlottesville, the, the Unite the Right rally over the removal of Robert E. Lee's statue. Of course, Robert E. Lee, the, the general um, you know, who led the South in the Civil War, that was the far right rally that ended in the death of uh, the, the vehicular homicide of um, the peaceful protester, Heather Hare. And that was the one where Donald Trump said that there were very fine people on both sides of the argument and shocked the world by calling white supremacists, I mean, outright white supremacists, right? They were, they were shouting blood and soil Nazi slogans. Um, they were shouting Jews will not replace us. What people are now starting to understand is part of great replacement theory. And so all of that was happening and people were trying to understand it. And I have been teaching Gone with the Wind for many years now and knew that Margaret Mitchell, what, one of the things that people said about those statues, of course, is that they thought that they went up in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War and people didn't realize that they were built actually as late as they were. And um, they were actually built in the 20th century, not in the 19th century for the most part, or in the late 19th century. And that they were they were erected during battles over civil rights, and and that Margaret Mitchell's lifetime coincided with this. She was born in 1900, so she kind of she died in 1949. So her life really sort of hit that first half of the century. And so as people were starting to talk about that, it just for me it just made me think of Gone with the Wind as a story I know really well, and as a and as a familiar way of giving people a shorthand for what is such a long and complicated history with many layers of myth-making in it. When you want to understand the myth-making part of the Confederacy, Gone with the Wind gives you this easy shorthand where you can go, you know, like the world of Gone with the Wind, (laughs) that thought slavery was nice and thought it was all romantic and says it was all fabulous. It was always sort of there in my head, but I originally thought that this would be a very short book that would just kind of explain the statues. And as you know, from reading it, it is not a short book. It ended up being my longest book because the story is so big and complicated. And because obviously since 2017, so much more has happened and actually Gone with the Wind kind of kept up with it as the history kept unfolding. Gone with the Wind seemed to me had more and more to say about what was happening now, mostly in a bad way, I should say. Um, But so that's really why. We're going to go into some of the myth making in more detail um, a little bit later on but I thought perhaps we could talk about the book when it first came out so Gone with the Wind came out in 1936 and made Margaret Mitchell almost an instant celebrity she earned a Pulitzer Prize Um, it was adapted into a film that became one of the most successful films of all time firstly what is it about the story of Gone with the Wind that has made it such a success and such a phenomenon why is it so appealing I think there are kind of um, a couple, obviously a couple of answers to that question where anything is that big and that appealing, it's probably not going to have one single core reason why that is. But for Gone with the Wind, I think there are a couple of aspects to it. One is that uh, particularly we can, we can separate out its popularity then from its kind of enduring popularity. It really struck a chord at the moment that it came out. It is, although it's a novel about the American Civil War and set in the 1860s, it's very much a Depression era novel. It's very much a novel that was geared to the the preoccupations of pe- of Americans in particular in the middle uh, 1930s, and so it resonated a lot with um, its emotional 
pitch and storytelling um, really connected with where people were because it's a story about survival. Scarlett O'Hara survives war. She survives hunger. She survives the loss of everything and everyone that she loves and cares about. And it's a story about resilience. It's a story about not giving up and, and staring down defeat. So it's really a story about survivalism and, um, and defiance. Um, she has this really defiant spirit. So that was clearly what struck a chord with readers in the 1930s. She, you know, her, for those who know the um, movie will remember that the end of the first act, right before the intermission is Scarlett raising her fist to the sky and saying, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. And, you know, saying that to a country with 25% unemployment where people are home, you know, middle-class professionals have become homeless and we're living in shanty towns. And this all, you know, really, really struck a chord. But of course you don't have to be in a great depression for that kind of resilience to still resonate with people. And one of the things that I um, was interested in in the course of my research to discover was the ways in which internationally it has it has re- and, and over time um, historically has resonated with people in almost any conflict situation. So Vietnamese people after the Vietnam conflict um, talked about the as readers talked about the the ways that they connected with it. Chinese readers connected with it um, through memories of famine. Certainly after the Second World War, we know it was it was a, an incredibly popular novel on the French underground. It was a resistance novel. The Nazis banned it um, because it was a story about resisting an occupying force. And so there, it, it has that ongoing sense of, of as I say, of defiance and uh, um, surviving against all the odds and, and you know, the, the one, per, well, one individual surviving um, you know, the, the, this cataclysm, it's also really, really important, I think, for a lot of readers that it is a woman who's doing this, that it is Scarlett O'Hara, who is really one of the great fictional characters of all time. There are lots to dislike about Scarlett, and I go into that at some length in the book. Um, but but as a character, you gotta like Scarlett. I mean, you just have to. She is tough as nails, and she takes no garbage from anybody and um and she's deeply loyal there are lots and lots of things to like about scarlett o'hara and i think for a lot of women it's very important that she's this every woman character and that that's such a rare thing because you know for men to identify with female characters is is you know that, that's certainly in the minority and so but here's scarlett as this american every woman and suddenly anyone can identify with this woman and her determination to survive and to keep her home together and to keep her family together. And, you know, and she never gives up, right? So she, she wants all the wrong things, but she never gives up. So, um, you know, she's totally stubborn and determined that she will have the man that she wants. And, and you know, uh, so, th- so there's a lot to enjoy about Scarlett. And I think that, um, that people still connect to her on that on that level, both in the novel and in the film. And then finally, with the film, it is just a triumph of classic Hollywood filmmaking. It's incredibly glamorous. The costumes are fabulous. It all looks gorgeous. And you've got with uh, Vivian Lee and um, Clark Gable, just one of the great screen pairings of all time. And Vivian Lee gets one of the best screen performances ever in that film. Regardless of what you think about the story, her acting performance is absolutely phenomenal. So there's still a lot to like about it. Publicity for Mitchell's novel at the time drew attention to her research and it was portraying a historically accurate world. Um, She even said herself, I think, that she saw it as a realistic portrayal of the Old South. I've got a quote here. She said, the book is as true as documentation and years of research could make it. You 
I think, disagree with this. So can you tell our listeners some of the ways in which Gone with the Wind is perhaps not an accurate portrayal of the Old South? So, I mean, she, she certainly believed that it was accurate. So I don't think she's lying when she said that. She wasn't setting out to deceive. The problem is that the research that she did was all from the perspective of white supremacists, apologists for slavery. So the, um, it was literally the slaveholders' history. The enslavers wrote the histories that justified their enslavement of black people. And that was the research that Margaret Mitchell was relying on. So it's profoundly biased. And in many cases, it was outright untrue. It was actually disinformation. It was propaganda campaign that white supremacists undertook after they lost the Civil War to justify their cause retrospectively. And that became known as the lost cause, the myth of the lost cause, this idea that, and it is the idea exemplified by Gone with the Wind, the idea that the, that the Old South was a chivalrous, genteel world, a, a, um, a nostalgic, gentle, glorious world that was um, a kind of agrarian idyll and it was destined to blow Gone with the Wind and that it was sort of modernity that, that pushed you know, industrialization and the grasping commercial north that came after this lovely life in the South. And, and, and that was how they wrote their histories of the, of the Civil War. And those derived or, or, or developed um, directly out of pro-slavery propaganda before the war that insisted that slavery was a benevolent paternalistic system that was civilizing and Christianizing savage Africans. And, and that was their language. I mean, that's, that's how they would um, talk about it and justify it. And so the, this idea developed that was deeply self-satisfying to white Southerners and let them save face after losing the war that said that, that their way of life was, was good and it was fine and the slaves were happy and everybody, you know, and, and, um, and that they liked being enslaved, which is insane. I mean, you just have to pause for one second and think about how insane that is, right? But they, it's one of the things I, I go into it at some length in the book, as you know, is that, um, because I grew up listening to this phrase too, they gone with the wind and, and in the ways that people talked about nostalgic images of American slavery, they would use this phrase, an ideal slave plantation. And you just have to pause and think about what that, what moral, as I say in the book, what moral universe are you inhabiting where you can put those words together and talk about an ideal slave plantation? You know, I mean, it's an absolute oxymoron, but that is the world that they, that they um, developed. And that is the world that Margaret Mitchell believed that she was accurately depicting. So what I do in the book is try to show, I mean, it goes, as I say, it goes well beyond just saying that slaves didn't like being enslaved. We can begin with that as a pretty obvious human truth that doesn't require explanation, but then to go into the details of the ways in which that the systems that the um, white South created have um, created all kinds of structural legacies that um, American society is still wrestling with. And it's why the, the problems of race in America remain so deep-seated because they, they would, we, we never redressed them as a society. Um, so, I mean, I, I could go, I mean, it's a, it's a long book and I could go, I could go into great detail about all of the ways in which it's inaccurate about slavery, but we can begin with that, right? It's a, it's a book that has the worldview that says that slavery was good, that slaves liked being enslaved. It considers the breed emancipated um, black Americans after the civil war. It calls them 
trashing free issue darkies and uses more racist language than that to describe them for exercising their freedoms. It considered so it says that the that the best black black people were the ones who would stay with the family and it, and it makes a moral judgment on that and then says that the, that black people who didn't do that are are worthless and deserve what happens to them which is racial violence which is lynching so that's the world view of the book and and of all the characters in it and so what i wanted to do was pause and think about some of those clichés and how they still persist and what happens when we actually dig into the documentary history and look at what really happened you mentioned the lost cause and how it established this campaign of misinformation. And you make this claim in the book that this is still present in US culture and politics today. So could you perhaps give us an example of a modern example of how the lost cause is still impacting the US? Sure. I mean, the the fact that, that some of the insurrectionists on January 6th were carrying Confederate flags is, is a pretty good one right there, right? So the idea that the Confederacy was something that Southerners can and should have pride in, the Confederacy is distinct from being from the South, right? I'm not saying Southerners shouldn't have regional or local pride. You know, God bless, off you go, sure. But not in the Confederacy. The Confederacy was specifically formed to defend race-based slavery, white supremacist slavery. It was created to fight for slavery, and it was created to fight for the expansion of slavery. In particular, the Confederate Constitution declared that um, they banned the prohibition of slavery, and they said that it would be illegal to um, to ever outlaw slavery, and that it, they were um, enjoining its expansion across the West as as settler colonialism moved westward. And so the the very idea that the Confederacy is something that Southerners, um, that was benign, um, that 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 flag can be benign, um, and that and that it's a and that it's a simple regional um, you know symbol of of where you come from is that's already a myth, right? I mean um, and then you can you know keep um, spinning it out. So the the idea is that, that the Civil War was fought over states' rights. A great many uh, Americans, both from North and South now, will tell you that the, that the war was fought over states' rights. That is absolutely disprovable. Um, the documentation at the time makes it very clear. And they say it wasn't fought over slavery. Um, well, it was. <laughs> it was fought over slavery. And the Confederate leaders at the time said so, right? So all you have to do is go read their speeches and that's and read the newspapers of the time. And that's what they're saying. But now Southerners will tell you um, that that's not why it was fought. And it was fought over keeping a small federal government. Well, that's a fight that is still happening in the United States right now, right? So that's part of how... Um, a great many Republicans understand their political affiliation is around small government. And that part, part of the um, cultural mythologies around the ideas of federal overreach and small government come out of those ideas about, um, about the civil war being fought over states' rights. When we think about Margaret Mitchell, some people might say, oh, she was a product of her time. Some people would say you can justify what she wrote because she was writing with the information she had at the time and trying, as she said herself to be as historically accurate as she could be. Um, but were any of Mitchell's contemporaries offering an alternate view? Was, was, were there people at this, at this time speaking differently and maybe getting more at the actual truth? Yeah, absolutely. So we can start with even some of her contemporary um, novelists from the South, um, William Faulkner, whose own 
um, relationship to the question of um, of race and the Civil War and historical memory is you know so is absolutely central to his whole fictional project. Um, and he had a much more complicated view of slavery he had a, uh, and race relations. He had a much deeper and more vexed understanding of how ugly it was, and there was a lot more truth telling in his um, in his avowedly fictional accounts um, about um, the horrors of it. He doesn't, you know. I mean, there's just a more of an admission there. Um, and um, but somebody like Lillian Smith, for example, who was um, Mitchell's contemporary, they knew each other, they corresponded a little bit, they didn't like each other. Um, and Lillian Smith was, um, um, she wrote a book called Strange Fruit, which of course is the um, the famous anti-lynching anthem sung by Billie Holiday. And um, Lillian Smith was an was a civil right a white civil rights campaigner a white Southern woman who was um, against miscegenation laws and was fighting for civil rights. So, um, so there were people like that who, who, you know, Mitchell certainly had um, access to. And then um, the year before Gone with the Wind came out, the great black historian W.E.B. Du Bois had just published um, his history of black reconstruction in America, which was the first great work of African-American revisionist history that said this, all of this history is white supremacist. And we actually have to look at, if we go back and look at what, um, how black people participated in emancipation, how they participated in the civil war, how they fought for their own, um, enfranchisement, how they fought for their political rights, how they worked at self-government, um, all of the things that they did and how they participated in this process, which has been completely erased from white historiography. And he wrote that in 1935. It was published the year before uh, Gone with the Wind. She certainly had access to it. It was not a huge, it was not a huge bestseller or anything, but she certainly, you know, could have read it. And there were also plenty of um, white historians at that time who were starting to re-examine this stuff. But one of the most egregious things that she says, um, which I find really kind of indefensible when people say things like, oh, you know, she was just of her time. But one of, she, uh, so this woman who claims that she researched, you know, so carefully, re- did absolutely no research into the Ku Klux Klan whatsoever because she said that everybody knew. So she just took that as red. She was like, well, everybody knows. I don't need to do research into that. And that should tell you right there, that's such a red flag that therefore there was a willful blindness there. Some part of her knew that she was going to find stuff she didn't want to know. And so she didn't do any research into that at all. So, and she could have, she could have found that out. Um, so, you know, uh, um, and, and the news, you know, she had, she did all of this newspaper research and, and, um, and she could have. And um, so there are lots of ways in which she could have challenged herself more. Um, and, um, and, and just, used a kind of novelistic imagination of the way that Faulkner did of just imagine people in, in a more, um, in a, in a richer and more complex way. And just ask yourself some really basic questions. Like did black people really like being enslaved? You know, there's such a failure of moral imagination if you can't even get yourself to ask that question. So that's why I don't personally buy that. Um, she was of her time and place defense. It was 1936. So you say it was almost 100 years ago, but from my point of view, it was 75 years after the Civil War had been fought, and we'd actually lost ground by that point. So you fight a Civil War on the basis that slavery is a moral abomination, and 75 years later, you're going, ah, it wasn't really that bad. (laughs) So it was actually morally regressive. It was an interesting point about the Ku Klux Klan, because I think um, one of the examples you have in the book is she describes them as quietly hanging someone and just that word quietly is quite powerful there it's really sinister um, isn't it? yeah 
I mean, the Ku Klux Klan feature heavily in Gone with the Wind. Like a number of the characters are members and, the and heroes. The heroes are members. Um, and it's kind of interesting because in the film version, the director changes the name of the I don't think they're named the Ku Klux Klan. It's just referred to as a social club. And the film didn't come out that long after Gone with the Wind. So there must have been an awareness that that's unsavory. That's, you know, that's extremely unsavory to have the protagonists in this. Yeah. It was um, it was a controversy. In fact, um, the um, there were two reasons why it was really controversial um, at the time. People need to remember that the second clan had only just kind of started. It never really officially disbanded, but it was defunct by the mid nineteen thirties. But it still existed, and it just was kind of you know it defanged. Right, it had lost most of its political power, which was in the ascendancy in the nineteen twenties, and in the middle of the twenties was when it really kind of peaked around nineteen twenty four. So this is about ten years later. But so people were very still very well aware of. Um, and, and Mitchell was writing Gone with the Wind while the second clan was dominating Atlanta politics where she lived her whole life. And, um, and so the um, people were, were well aware that it was problematic that she that her protagonists were these kinds of, um, uh, you know, unapologetic, you know, they were leaders of the clan. She has Ashley, who's the, who's, you know, Scarlett's supposed love. Um, he, he is the leader of the, um, of the Atlanta clan in the novel. And, um, and that's something that they all take pride in. And, um, uh, Scarlett doesn't like it, but only because she thinks they'll get in trouble with the Yankees, not because she has any moral objection to it. Scarlett has no moral objections to much of anything, <laughs> which is one of the things one can like about her actually. But, um, but so the, there are a couple of things to understand there. So one is that there, there was, um, at the time they had developed this idea and it's another myth that the, second clan was very different from the first clan and that the second clan was problematic in the 1920s, but that the first clan, which had emerged after the civil war, um, was somehow was noble. And it was all sort of, um, it was full of, of people like Ashley who were lovely and chivalrous. And, and the first clan was, was if anything worse than the second clan, they were, there's nothing to choose between them morally. They were vicious. They were violent. They were horrible, um, murderous, um, torch, they tortured people, um, and um, and and I, you know, the, I go into that at, um, at some length in the, in the book. But so, the, so first of all, they thought it was defensible because they said, "Well, these were the first clan," but um, and and so that was supposed to be why it would be acceptable to have these um, characters be members of the clan. But what happened was, first of all, black um, activists, African Americans, um, campaigned. To stop them from glorifying the Klan in the film. The film was made three years after the novel came out. It was, it was um, produced at the end of 1939, and um, and so they had about three. And, and Selznick announced um, in right away that he had acquired the rights, and then he had this whole big publicity story about how he was filming it and the search for Scarlet. So people were really aware of it, and and there was a lot of noise about it. And so African Americans were campaigning very actively to say that if you make this movie romanticizing the Klan, it is going to be directly dangerous for black Americans and it will act as a, as an advertisement, as a recruitment poster for the Klan and you will have more Klan membership and it might have a resurgence and it's dangerous and irresponsible and you can't do it. Selznick accepted that argument partly because they were so conscious of the rise of fascism of course, the movie comes out at the end of 1939, as I just said, after the Second World War had started. They actually um, uh, wrapped filming just as the Second World War broke out. And Selznick was a first-generation 
um, son of Jewish immigrants from what is now Lithuania. And so he was acutely conscious of the rise of fascism. And he said he didn't want the film to be an advertisement for fascism. And he was worried that if they were Klansmen, they would be. So what they did was, as, as you say, they took the decision to just euphemize it, to call it a social club and pretend it wasn't the Klan. The problem with that is that is that they still the characters still have to go on a lynching raid because the plot demands it. Is how one of the key characters dies, and so they're still going. They're they're still lynchers. So call them the clan. Don't call them the clan. They're still going out and lynching people. Um, and and that's our those are our protagonists, and we are supposed to we're in a worldview that is um, that is supposed to be sympathetic with the people who are going on a lynching raid. So you know, from Selznick's point of view, he was trying to do something that would. That, but that would be, um, he said he didn't, he didn't want um, black people, the phrase he used was he didn't want them to come out on the wrong side of the ledger in the film. But, but he, he was also trying to sidestep commercial controversy and he didn't want film boycotted. He, so he also, so he was trying to sanitize it so that, so that everything, you know, would be, would seem acceptable. And so, you know, whether you should sanitize the brutality of history is a question that he, that he sidestepped. And that's a really interesting debate about sanitizing, especially with language. And I was going to ask you, actually ask you a question about language in, in particular. Um, so I think something you return to throughout the Raticum is how vi- language is used in a quite a violent and destructive way, whether it's um, by oppressing people or by obscuring truth or by omission or propaganda. Um, what are some of the most notable examples in how language can be a tool of violence against people? Well, the, the big and most obvious one is is the most famous racist slur in uh, you know in the American uh, vernacular, which of course is now exported around the world, the N word. And um, and you know one of the things that I that I show in the book is the way that um, that in the story, in the novel in particular, it's it's so deeply. Is so almost unconsciously associated with violence that when characters use the word, they then start fantasizing about racial violence. They ins- so so Scarlett uses the word and then thinks longingly—that's the novel's word—thinks longingly about whipping black people. Right. So that so the word triggers these violent racist fantasies, and it triggers actual racial violence. So they they go together. Um, and where the word happens, violence, racist violence is stalking alongside of it. Um, and, and so that's the most glaring one. But, I, but it is um, one of the things that I was really um, wanting to, to explore and, and to think about more is the ways in which when we talk about sanitizing history, doing violence to history, so we have these kinds of metaphors about violence that that actually what you're talking about when you go and look at the documentary history is of, um, of extreme, um, brutal violence. And I mean, so much so that, that I put a trigger warning at the beginning of the book. And it's something that I, that I really want readers to understand that they're going to confront in this book. Um, and that I decided not to euphemize because I've, because I think that even words like torture or maiming, or dismemberment um, are themselves too kind for what we're actually talking about. And some of the brutality of the language from the primary documents, the firsthand testimony of people who um, experienced this violence or witnessed this violence, 
um, gives a much better idea of um, how vicious and how, how bestial it really was. And the ways in which language is used to cloak that or to, as a veil to disguise, to, to keep ourselves from seeing that is a really important um, theme in the book, I think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So what Baldwin said was, it is terrible to watch people cling to their captivity and insist on their own destruction. I think Black people have always felt this about America and Americans and have always seen spinning above the thoughtless American head the shape of the wrath to come. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I was going to ask a question about this um, because you delve quite deeply into the very brutal realities of things like lynching. Um, Did you, were you, whilst researching the book, were you shocked by what you found? Was it worse than you expected? Or did you have a, did you think you had a good understanding of it before you started researching? I thought I had a good understanding of it and I was still shocked. And I, and I thought I knew what I was going to find and I was still shocked. Um, there are there are aspects of it that are unspeakably shocking, and, and the first time that you encounter them, um, in particular, I'm thinking of um, some examples from what's called the First Clan Report from 1871. The violence got the white supremacist violence got so bad um, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War that there were congressional hearings, much like are happening right now around the January 6th insurrection, and have similar set of hearings to try to get to the bottom of the violence that was happening. And it's the best document. It's ran to tens of thousands of pages in the end. And it's the, and it was all this firsthand testimony. And it's the, it's the um, best documentation that we have of um, the racist violence that was happening at the time. And so there's all of this firsthand testimony of people just describing incidents of racial brutality that they, that they witnessed. And I, um, I use a few from Georgia because the whole, of course, Gone with the Wind is set in Georgia. And, the, and so I kind of use that as a focus and, and stick to Georgia. And so I um, include some examples from that. And when I, and I, reading the first plan report was one of the first um, um, bits, of, I should say bit, it's big, but the first part of the primary research that I did when I decided that I was going to do you know, some, some deep dives into primary documentation, the plan report was where I started. And it, so it was really the first thing that I turned to was reading the Georgia testimony and um, and the one that, and I won't say what happens in it because it's terrible, but um, the one that I include in the book was one of the first ones that I read. And I still remember the impact that, that I, I was unspeakably shocked. And, um, uh, and, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for a while. Right? I, mean, I don't think I'm naive. And as I say, I knew, I knew about lynching. I knew what I was getting, what I was talking about. And I knew, you know, in my previous book, I was writing about people being burned alive at the stake in 1915 and 1936, um, the people being dismembered, um, 
charred remains being sold. Um, they, they would sell body parts as souvenirs. I knew all of that stuff and I was still shocked, which gives you an indication of how bad this was. Well, you know, I'm not sure you know the, the incident that I'm referring to. And, um, and I was, it's sickening. I mean, it is absolutely sickening. And I, um, and I include one photograph of a lynching victim, um, and I don't know if I should say this, but I, when we were t- thinking about how to use the images, when I drafted the book, I had the images um, accompanying the text, and so you know I had a um, I had a capture of the of the image next to the story that I was telling about um, this man is Charlie Hale, who was lynched in 1911 outside of Atlanta, and. Uh, so I, I ended up having to look at that photo a lot because I was drafting the book and you get desensitized after a little while and, and you notes know, there and everything. But also it was sort of small because it was in the text. And then we decided that for the finished book that we would use, um, we would have a glossy photographic insert. And so when I just got the book like a week ago and I opened it up and I looked at that photo and you can see detail in the glossy high quality reproduction of this photograph that it was like, it's like a punch in the face and it was like being hit with it all over again. And that was just a week ago. And I knew that photo was there and I was still shocked by it. And I, and I found myself wondering, I mean, I, there's a trigger warning at the beginning of the book, but people often just pick up a book and flip through a glossy photograph and, and they're, and they're, and it's sort of sitting there waiting as this kind of, and there's something kind of symbolic about that, about this, um, this, this horrific, history at the core of this story and kind of at the core of American history that we simply haven't come to grips with as a society. America just doesn't tell the truth about it yet. We're starting to, we're just starting to, but basically unless you're a professional historian or doing university level work in American history, um, certainly when I was growing up, you didn't learn this stuff. We were not taught about the history of lynching in America. I know British historians who've said to me, as I've been working on this stuff over the last five or six years, professional British academic historians who said to me, why didn't I know this? And that's partly why I wrote this book. How should we be approaching a text like Gone with the Wind today? Because it's still enorm- enormously popular. Um, is it a dangerous book if we're not reading it with this wider context alongside it? It's a good question, and it's one that I really wrestled with because you know I'm a professor of literature, so uh, you know first and foremost that's where I started, and I and I, um, you know, my work has increasingly moved into history, but you know the study of literature and fiction is is at the core of everything that I do and and storytelling, and so I you know I'm hardwired to think that fiction is a good thing, and I'm hardwired to believe that we have to fight for. Um, for protecting it and for understanding all the value that it brings and the ways it enriches our society and our minds, all of that stuff. One of the things that I talk about with this book, and it's even in the subtitle, um, is that there are, there are ways in which fiction can turn into lies. And, um, and it's not always, but Gone with the Wind is a fiction that turns into a lie because it's lying about history and it gives you the impression that it's telling you the truth about history. And it is an act of deception. It is actively deceiving the reader into thinking um, that things are true that were not historically true. And that is dangerous, yes. I mean, personally, I don't think that the answer to that kind of danger is censorship. I don't believe in it, and I don't, um, I don't think it works. Um, 
And so I would rather, um, and it's wrong. It goes, it goes in, you know, it's a slippery slope into all kinds of problematic places. And basically anything that Nazis did, I'm against. I mean, that's a simple moral rule that I still can, you know, I don't, I don't have to say, I don't have to rethink that one. So Nazis liked it. I tend to not like it. So they burn books. I don't. Um, and, um, uh, and I don't mean to be flippant. I mean, I, mean, I kind of mean that, um, but the, but we still have to wrestle with, the ways in which those kinds of fictions can be, to use your word, dangerous. And so I guess I just come back to believing in education. I come back to believing that we are a curious species. We like to learn, even when that learning is difficult, and we see value in it. And my hope is that what a book like this one can do is to say, although what you're going to learn in it is going to be painful in some ways, and it's not an easy thing to read or to think about. There is a there is a pleasure that comes the other side of that kind of knowledge, which is the pleasure of understanding an apparently chaotic situation and the sense that oh, okay, because because when the, for me anyway, certainly the, on on top of a chaotic uh, situation, if I'm also confused by it, then that just adds to my anxiety about the chaos and the confusion is also you, you can't process what's happening, and so. To me, if at least we can get to a point where we understand why we are where we are, even though it might be painful and it involves confronting things about our past that we might not want to know and about our societies and indeed about our present day society that we might not want to know, at least we come out the other side of it understanding something. And, and, and that's what I hope that reading Gone with the Wind in a spirit of skepticism and interrogation and historical knowledge can do. Um, but I recognize that that's a, um, that that's a utopian wish and that not every reader is going to do that. And, um, and so I, I certainly understand why some people conclude that the answer is certainly not sort of censored gone with the wind, but to stop, to, to, to try to, take attention away from it and say, let's stop reading it. Let's stop talking about it. Um, let's say that it is, it is pernicious and something that we don't want to um, encourage people to think about. I think that we should think about it, but ask really tough questions about it. And as I say, I recognize that not everybody's good. <laughs> we can try. And then my final question to you, um, I wanted to ask about the title of the book. So the full title is actually um, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. Uh, but I wanted to ask about that first bit, The Wrath to Come. Could you tell our listeners the meaning behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. So The Wrath to Come, uh, as a phrase, originates in the Bible. The reason that I um, use it here is because it comes from um, uh, a James Baldwin quotation of Christian Baldwin, the great um, African-American um, writer in the second half of the 20th century. And he um, has uh, a, a line that just kind of resonated for me the whole time that I was writing this book and in many ways was the raison d'etre behind the book. It was, it was my kind of impetus into writing it. Um, so what Baldwin said was, it is terrible to watch people cling to their captivity and insist on their own destruction. I think black people have always felt this about America and Americans and have always seen spinning above the thoughtless American head, the shape of the wrath to come. So it's a, you know, an image of, of racial reckoning and this idea of thoughtless white Americans who just don't get it. And so I wanted to write this book in, 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 in 
in an effort to, to try to educate myself better and hopefully, you know, share that learning with others about um, what it is that we don't get about our own thoughtlessness, our thoughtlessness about history. And this idea of this reckoning, um, the reckoning may be at hand. Um, if it's not, it's certainly coming. And, um, but, I, but I particularly um, liked the phrase as a title because of the ways that it also then resonates with not only the Grapes of Wrath, um, obviously the, the classic Steinbeck novel, which was published at exactly the same time. So it was published in 1939 as the film was about to be produced. And then it was instantly filmed in 1940. And so basically gone with the film version of Gone with the Wind and the film version of Grapes of Wrath were in cinemas at the same time. So they're very much, um, and, and, and they're, um, anyway, so there are lots of connections between them and I talk about this in the book, but, um, but of course Steinbeck got his title, The Grapes of Wrath from Julia Ward Howe's Civil War Anthem, which is a call to abolition, which is Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory of the Coming of the Lord, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Um, so that's the great anthem of the North, which is anti-slavery, pro-abolition. Um, and of course, it has the famous line, um, he hath trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. So, so the, and obviously again, a biblical image, right? So, so what I really liked about the wrath to come was the way that it connected the Civil War, abolition, the Grapes of Wrath, the American Dream, Gone with the Wind, Baldwin, and this kind of um, these gaps in um, in white America's understanding of our own history and and, our, and the ways in which we might try to be less thoughtless um, about the wrath to come. So it seemed to me that it kind of summed up everything I was trying to do, and I very much wanted to give um, Baldwin, well, he's a very important voice in the book, as are several other great. Um, African-American writers I, who I use as kind of touchstones. Um, so there's um, a couple of key points from Ralph Ellison, a couple of key points from Toni Morrison. And I wanted to make sure that some of the great black and, and Du Bois, of course, the great historian, um, that their voices um, were, were carrying some of the key moments and some of the key insights because um, I'm definitely learning from them and they needed to be front and center. You are listening to Professor Sarah Churchwell. Her book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, is out now, published by Apollo. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.